So we are continuing our series of messages from the Psalms, and we find ourselves in Psalm 67 this morning. You can find that, I believe, on page 569 of your pew Bibles. Um, We'll be looking at, yes, the entire chapter. Actually, it's only seven verses long, so it's not a long chapter. Um, If you are able, would you please stand with me out of respect and reverence for the reading of God's holy word. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations Upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the reading of his word. Would he add his blessing to our hearts this morning? We pray. Please be seated. So as we come to this 67th Psalm, again, just a brief reminder that we are now coming to the third of four consecutive Psalms in which um, the psalmist is celebrating the undisturbed reign of the divine sovereign king, God, over all the earth, over all creation. And remember, these Psalms are in a sense a response to the previous four Psalms we looked at, which were Psalms in which the earthly sinful, messianic king was crying out to God for help in maintaining and sustaining both his earthly kingdom and that kingdom also being God's earthly kingdom here on this earth. The point really in this arrangement is that since God is reigning undisturbed at all times in his matchless wisdom and justice and power over all the earth, then the messianic king and all the rest of us should have no doubt at all that God has abundant, matchless resources to help him and us in our own distress and to sustain us. I'll also remind you, and because this psalm is a particular example of it, that this whole second book of the Psalter that we're in right now has this special emphasis on communicating with, not, not just trying to defeat and... and uh, subjugate the enemies and the nations, the peoples, but has a particular emphasis on reaching out to, communicating with the nations in order to communicate to them God's gracious word, God's gracious ways, God's gracious salvation. This psalm is a brief but absolutely sparkling example of that for us this morning. And as we look at it, we will see, I think, three points in it. The first is that God blesses his people. The second is that God blesses the nations through his people. And the final is that God then blesses his people through his blessing of the nations. First, blessing his people. When I read the words of the very first verse of this psalm, did they sound at all familiar to you? They should. Because they are at least a brief excerpt, if not a summary, of the preferred blessing, the benediction from God, which I pronounce upon you at the close of our worship services together. 
comes from Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. Listen to the context. Yes, I'm going to read the blessing. But listen to what God says before the blessing, why the blessing, and then listen to what he says about the result of the blessing at the end. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then God goes on to say, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. That's why it's my preferred blessing and benediction. God himself gave it, not that all the benedictions in Scripture aren't given by God, but these are God's spoken words literally from his mouth to Moses, and he himself promises that as I do this, he will put his name on his people, and I will bless them. Now the psalmist, and again, this is not attributed to David in, in the heading for the psalm, but because of where it's at in this collection, is really believed by most people to be David who's written this psalm. The, David here is calling upon God in prayer, and as he does so, what he is doing immediately in this first verse is invoking this amazing and gracious blessing that God himself commanded to be pronounced upon his people and God himself promised that through that blessing he would then bless his people. That's what David is asking for. He's pleading with God to fulfill and remember and fulfill his promise upon his people. Now a question we might want to ask in this context is when we ask God to bless us What do we mean by that? What do we want from God when we ask Him to bless us? What do we have in mind when we say, Oh God, please bless us? Is it a a wonderful spouse? Beautiful children? Um, Is it a great job? Is it a great home? Is it health? Is it wealth? I think very often those are the things we have in our hearts and minds when we say to God, Please bless me. Are those God's blessings? Well, yes and no. Yes, those things all are, or at least may be, true blessings from God. There are times when they, in fact, can become temptations and distractions and things that pull us away from a focus on God and tend to have us trust more in the world and all of those things. And so they can actually be a negative thing in some situations. But in general, they are or can be true blessings from God. But I tend to characterize them as blessings with a lowercase small b. Right? They are blessings, but they're not the ultimate blessing that God himself is talking about in this ironic blessing, let alone David. What does it mean, for instance, when we read the ironic blessing, when we read even David's summary of it here, what does it mean to have someone's face shine upon us. What what is that? What's the picture that God is giving us there? Well, I would dare say that I've experienced this many times in my life with my wife and children and grandchildren. I've been with them and they have done something that pleases me so much 
that I can feel it. My eyes are lit up and my smile is so big it's threatening to split my face open. And what's happening on my face is only a a mere reflection of what's going on in my heart. Because in that moment, I am so thrilled with them and what they've done. I love them and I am embracing them in a sense with my facial expression. I am ready to bless them in any way that I can in that moment. My heart is given to them and it's clearly evident by my face shining upon them. Well, in a sense, that is what it means for God's face to shine upon us. God is looking at us and his eyes are lit up and his smile is big and beaming. He is pleased. He is loving us and he is wanting to bless us, to give us. Except there's one small problem in that comparison. The problem is that there is nothing about us that is inherently pleasing to God in any way at all. Even the very best things we do, our own righteousness is nothing but filthy rags in God's sight in comparison to His perfect holiness. That's the problem. But you see, God's ironic blessing also addresses the problem. That's why David echoes the desire that's given in the ironic blessing for God to be gracious to us. Did you notice that phrase in there? God be gracious to us. Why? Because we need it. We don't deserve in any way these blessings that we are asking for. We need, in other words, so badly... The very thing that we don't deserve. You see, the real blessing of God that God is talking about and David is also talking about here is that he blesses us with himself. He gives us himself in a loving, keeping, caring, covenantal relationship where he commits himself to us and our good. So when we ask God to bless us, what is it we're asking for? Well, it's not such a big problem to ask for those other material kinds of blessings. But what we want to think about is, what would all of those material blessings we generally tend to think about, what would they matter if we don't have this most fundamental, ultimate blessing of all of God giving himself to us? Well, we know the answer to that because Jesus himself gave it to us. Remember Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his own soul? And so that's really what God is talking about in Numbers and what David is talking about here in this psalm. And notice, he puts a sila here, right at the end of that first verse. He wants us to pause and seriously reflect on the meaning, the intent, the purpose of of that ironic blessing from God. And he's doing that with that sigla there, even though the sentence isn't finished. You notice that? It's sort of a comma there, and the sentence continues on into the second verse. You see, in verse 2, David finishes this sentence, and he finishes it by completing the request he is desiring from God. And notice, he doesn't ask God to bless his people in this graciously wonderful way so that we can have everything we want and so that we can keep him all to ourselves. 
That's not what he says. He asked God to bless his people by giving himself to them in a loving, saving relationship. Yes, even along with material blessings as well. In order that, so that, through them, God's people, and the evidence of his obvious blessing on them, that God's way will be known among the nations. God's way, and there's, there's a few different ways that could be understood. Um, God's way could mean the path to God. God's way could also mean um, the, the commands, behavioral commands that God makes of how we're to live our lives in light of being with Him. It also could be how God Himself conducts Himself. And in fact, I would imagine what David has in mind here is all three of those things. That God's, the path to Him, how God Himself is and lives, and how God wants us to live, commands us to live, I think is all intended by Him here. David wants God to bless His people so that through His people and the blessing He's put on them, the nations themselves will be led to recognize, to know, to realize, even to come to experience, perhaps, this blessing of God themselves. And and the truth is that what we really find here in verses 1 and 2, you may never have thought about it this way, is David combining the ironic blessing from Numbers with the blessing God promised to Abraham. Right? Because the blessing God promised to Abraham was, I am going to make you a great nation, singular, and I'm going to make you the father of many nations so that through your seed all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. David is taking that promise to Abraham and he's crowning it with the ironic blessing. When you bless them, bless them this way. Through us is what David is really asking here. So we've seen in verse 1 the idea of God blessing his people in this recitation, if you will, of the Aaronic blessing. And starting in verse 2 and running down through verse 5, what we're finding then is David's desire that as they are blessed, they will then be used as an instrument for God to bless the nations, the peoples. So the question is, is this just something David's saying because he's supposed to, or is this something that really is a desire burning in his own heart? Well, just look at verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, let the peoples, that means anybody but Jews, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Not just some, not just many. Let all of them praise you. And then he actually means it so deeply, so intently, he repeats the very same thing in verse 5, right? Word for word. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Double emphasis. It means great sincerity. But there's also another reason that we find that verse repeated and not back to back. You know, he could have done that in verses uh, 3 and 4, and then in 5 said something else, but instead in verse 4, we find something different. And what 3 and 5 do, being the exact same verse repeated over, is they bookend Verse 4, they highlight it. They make it stand out so that we'll notice what is being said in that verse. And what that verse is talking about is the nature 
of God's reign over and among the nations, the peoples of the whole earth. What is going to be their experience as God is the one who reigns over them? Well, notice verse 4 and how exactly that is put together. Four times we find the word praise. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Repeated twice, four times we find a call for the peoples of the nations to praise God. So four times, again, is very strong emphasis. But notice, what that is indicating is that as they come to see God reigning over them as king, they're not going to see him as a tyrant who has defeated them, conquered them, and subjected them and oppressed them. They instead are going to be celebrating God's reign as king over them, praising him for it. And along with that, notice that they are also called to be glad. It's predicted that they are going to be glad as they realize God is their king. And along with that gladness and praise, they are going to sing for joy. We say that emphasis on singing again. Now it is true also that when we look at that word praise, it's interesting, at least in my mind, that uh, at least another form of that same word is used in Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13. Instead of meaning praise that is directed to God, it actually refers to confessing sin and transgressions to God. Which again, if the nations are going to come to the point where they are praising God, being glad in Him, and singing with joy, they're going to have to do what? confess their sins and obtain his forgiveness. And so it fits whether it is intended that way or not is uncertain. But notice that the reason they're going to praise, be glad, and rejoice in God as their king is because God leads, God judges the peoples. Now, he's not just Israel's God, in other words. This is that emphasis on God as the divine king over all the earth. He judges the peoples. But he doesn't do it with partiality toward his people. He judges them with equity, with fairness, with righteousness. He is trusted. He is righteous. But he also does something else. He, the word used here is... It has the idea of governing, but it's just the idea of leading or guiding the nations. Again, the person or entity who leads and guides nations is the ruler, right? Um, and so that's the evidence. God is the king. But notice it, it isn't talking about him you know, dominating them. It's leading or guiding. It sounds more like a shepherd who would lead and guide sheep to their pasture and to the water that they need and to the rest they need rather than an oppressive tyrant who would rule over and subject you. Now, again, to help you maybe see the desire that David has in this psalm to fulfill this emphasis of the second book of the Psalter, to communicate with, to reach out to the nations. We might use the word to evangelize the nations, to bring them to God. It's interesting if you think about this, when I read you the Aaronic benediction, you heard Yahweh, the Lord, used three times. Each time God says something, he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious. 
Each time, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. When David does it here, he doesn't put that Yahweh in at all. He uses Elohim. Again, the word for God that the nations would recognize, that they would use in referring to God. And I say that's significant because the way God ends that passage, remember? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord do all this. And then he says, Thus shall you put my name on my people and I will bless them. David, it almost feels like almost sacrilege. He took Yahweh out of there, used three times, and he puts in a simple generic Elohim. But his desire is to reach out to the nations and have them understand what he is calling on them to do. The truth is that what David is asking for in verses 2 and running down through 5 for the nations is the very same thing he asked God for in verse 1 for Israel. That God would make his face shine upon them, be gracious to them, bless them. Now when we get to verse 6, verse 6 brings up sort of a technical translation issue which I usually don't get into. But I think it's worth mentioning here. Because there's a sense in which when you come to verse 6, this whole psalm has been sort of future focused. And even after verse 6, it continues to be sort of future focused. And yet, all of a sudden, you have this half of a verse that says, the earth has yielded its increase. Everything's all future. Why are we going back in the past at this point? Well, That change has caused many to believe that this psalm was perhaps written to celebrate a harvest festival. And and that they are, you know, the harvest has been not only grown, but has been brought in, and this psalm is being used to praise God for that. And and again, that could, could could very well be. But if a material harvest of grain, of fruit, is what is in David's mind there, Have you noticed that it's the only place in this entire psalm where anything physical or material is even being thought about? Everything else in this psalm is spiritual in nature, is it not? Now, the technical part of things. The rest of the verbs in this psalm are in what grammar, foreign language kind of people would call the imperfect tense. And when verbs are in the imperfect tense and you translate them into English, normally you translate them in the present tense, like it's happening right now. But you notice the psalm didn't really do that. Everything looks future, and that's because the imperfect can also be used to express a wishful desire about the future. That this would happen, I really pray this would happen in the future. This is what I'm asking for. And that's how most translators have approached this text, this psalm. And you can see, if you go through most of the translations, you'll find that that's the case. Forward focus, may, may, may. Well, when you come to verse 6, it's worth thinking about the fact that we sometimes talk about the future in a way that sounds like the past, if that makes sense. In other words, in this passage, for instance, instead of saying, the earth has yielded its harvest, you could say about the future, the earth at that point will have yielded its harvest. 
And if we're talking about all these other things in the future tense, it makes a great sense then to take this half of the verse, and instead of saying it has yielded, say the earth will have yielded its harvest. The NIV, by the way, does translate it in that in that way. Um, and I believe that's how this psalm should flow. The desire in verse 1 is for Israel to be blessed by God and with God. And then in verses 2 through 6, 2 through 5, the prayer is that through that blessing of Israel and on Israel, that the nations, the peoples then, would be blessed by God and with God so that they will in turn also be glad and rejoice in and praise God, again, four times praise God, as their just and righteous king who leads them as well as he has been leading Israel, his people. So now when you come to verses 6 and 7, when God is gracious to, blesses, and makes his face shine, in other words, when he gives himself in a loving, caring relation, covenant relationship to the peoples of the nations so that they're brought to praise him, rejoice in him, be glad in him. At that point then, the earth will have yielded up its spiritual harvest of souls for God. From every tribe and tongue and nation, which is exactly what God had promised to Abraham, is it not? That people from every nation would come to be blessed in him. You find that promise, by the way, Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 17.5. But notice David doesn't say in these verses, when the earth has yielded up its increase in this way, then the nations will be blessed. Although that's obviously true, right, in a sense. Instead, he says, then God, our God. Notice he's reverting back to Israel now. God, our God, the God of his people, will bless us. The blessing is coming back to Israel now. You notice that? To God's people. God will bless us. See, God is no less the God of Israel when he also, and after he also, becomes the God of the multitudes of Gentiles who will come to faith in him. He is still the God of his people. How can that be? Why can that be true? Well, you only have to go to the New Testament account of this in the book of Acts when they're struggling through exactly this issue, right? And, and the whole point is that when God takes his people that he's blessed and uses them to bring his truth to the nations so that the people of the nations believe in him, what happens is that those people now become who? His people. They become his people now. They're not the nations anymore. There's neither Jew nor Greek, right? Barbarian, free. They're God's people. Abraham's seed, as Paul says. In other words, Israel is blessed. God will bless us. Israel's blessed by the expansion of the kingdom of God. Not competing, as the Jews initially thought, and even the first Christians who were Jews thought, oh, these Gentiles, what are we going to do with these Gentiles? Paul said, forget about Gentiles. (laughs) They're you. They're us. Equal citizens in the kingdom of God. Just look at verse 7. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth do what? 
fear him. And so we think about an application of a psalm like this. And I think it's actually, again, this may not be something that occurred to you, but it's commentators talk about it. It occurred to me. It's actually somewhat remarkable how closely what David describes in this psalm fits with what the Apostle Paul is writing and speaking about in Romans chapter 11. We preached through Romans a while back, and I'm sure all of you remember that with crystal clarity. Um, but in Romans chapter 11, Paul up to that point had been dealing with this whole question of, wait a minute, the Jews, God came to them, he gave them all this stuff, he gave them his word, he gave them the oracles, he gave them himself, he gave them everything, and they rejected him, and so went out to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are being saved in droves, and Paul in Romans 11 comes and says, but what about God's people then? Has he cast them aside? And he goes on in Romans chapter 11 to talk about how, yes, God came to Israel, God brought the promise that he promised them, the Messiah himself, and they rejected God's way, they rejected God's Messiah, they went their own way, most of them, and yet God maintained a remnant, Paul says, a remnant who were faithful, those who followed Christ, And then God took that remnant through Christ and sent his word and his way out into the nations, to the peoples. Remember, you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the earth, right? He sends that word out, and as he does, as the Gentiles hear that word, amazingly, they all start getting converted like crazy. And then Paul goes on to talk about something really interesting. He really says, and the truth is that what God is doing here is that he is going to take those people who we thought had nothing to do with this, bring them into the covenant in order to make my people jealous, Paul says. To make them jealous so that they will at some point will recognize the truth of the gospel that the Gentiles are responding to at some point in the future, Paul says, a large portion of those people who are Jewish by nature and also who have been elect from all eternity are going to come to a point where by God's grace they're going to hear and see the response of the Gentiles and their hearts are going to be led to rejoice in Christ and embrace Him as their Messiah. And Paul uses language about this when he's talking about this. He says, then they will be grafted back into their own olive tree. In other words, they've been cut off at some point, but they can be grafted back into that same tree, the tree of God's people. He says, so all Israel will be saved. All Israel. Remember I said when the nations come in, what do they become? God's people. All Israel then is going to be saved. And then he says, through the mercy that was shown to you, to the Gentiles, they, the Jews, will then be shown mercy. You see the blessing returning back upon Israel. Because God shows mercy through the blessing he gave to them and brings the Gentiles and uses that to bring them. It's really interesting how those two closely parallel. But I also want you to think about how did the Old Testament priests bless the people with the Aaronic benediction? What did they really do? They spoke God's word to the people. 
probably much like I do, with hands outraised, and they pronounce the very words of God upon the people. That's true of their priestly work in general, right? They did offer sacrifices for the people, but they also taught the people about God and His ways. They taught the people God's word. A number of times in Scripture, God says that He set Israel up as a nation in order to make them a nation of priests, right? Well, if they were going to be priests, why did they need priests to minister? Well, they were all supposed to be priests in carrying God's word and witness to who? The world. The peoples. The na- As a nation, they were all supposed to live in God's sight so faithfully under God's obvious blessing so that the rest of the world would look at this and say, wow, something is really going on in that nation of Israel. I need to go and see what this is. And when they came, their hearts would be captivated and they too would become part of the people of God. They were supposed to live out and share God's word, his way with the nations to bring them to God. Well, we might ask ourselves, how did God fulfill that ironic benediction to bless his people through those words? Again, remember, the truth is that none of mankind deserve God's favor, God's salvation, and I want you to pay attention to the words I'm using here because it comes out of the benediction. But we didn't deserve it, but God has acted graciously toward us. When we turned away from Him, He turned His face toward us in grace and also in blessing. He has also faithfully kept, remember He's supposed to keep us, He has faithfully kept a remnant of those who have faith in him before Israel existed, while Israel existed, and after Israel ended. And he blessed us, literally, as I've defined God's blessing, literally gave himself to us as he sent his own divine son, the word, to come in human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the people? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Remember what Paul says about him in Colossians, about Jesus? He is the express image of the Father. Paul, in in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, I think it may be chapter 4, verse 6, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory, where? In the face of Turn his face, shine upon us in the face of Jesus Christ. See, most of Israel rejected Jesus. But the remnant, the faithful, believed him. And he sent them, the church now. Again, church doesn't replace Israel. Church is the continuation of the true Israel. They are joined to the real faithful remnant. And at the Great Commission, Christ himself sends the church where? All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Go into all nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what? Command them to obey everything that I've taught you. God's way, right? And so, we are given the mandate that was given to Israel to continue 
as we are blessed by this relationship we have with God, to go and share that and witness it to the whole world so that they also may be brought to the point where they can be glad in Him, rejoice in Him, and praise Him as their King. Yes, Jesus Christ is the literal fulfillment of the Aaronic benediction. Literally is. And I would urge you to think about that every time you hear that benediction, that blessing, that good word that is pronounced on you at the end of a worship service. Pronounced on you for a specific reason. Notice the end of it. It's pronounced upon you so that you may lead that worship with God's peace resting on you. The world doesn't have that. But the problem is, I shouldn't say the problem, the truth is, and it is an awful, terrible, and yet glorious truth, a truth that we have to realize, a truth that as we realize it, we need to be really, really humbled by, and yet as we are humbled by it, we also need to be glad in it, rejoice in it, and praise God continually for it. And that truth is that the only way we as guilty sinners could be able to have the unbelievable blessings contained in that ironic blessing to be poured out on us was for Jesus Christ, who was the only perfect, pure, and holy one, the Son of God Himself, the only one who fully ever deserved that blessing to be poured out on Him. The only way for us to receive it was for Him to, in fact, receive the exact opposite of it. Have you ever thought about that? You see, on the cross, God didn't bless Jesus. He cursed him. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And instead of being kept by God, there was a very real sense in which on that cross, he was forsaken, abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was real. And God can't look favorably upon sin. He can't look at sin with grace and blessing and favor. And in that moment, those hours on the cross, Jesus was literally carrying all the sins of all his people in all ages as if they were his own. He was in that moment, in God's eyes, the most vile, guilty sinner who ever lived. And so God turned his face away from him. He didn't lift it up and shine on him. He turned his face away from him and darkness fell over the site of the crucifixion for a space of three hours. And in that darkness, Christ suffered. Yes, suffered. Instead of God being gracious to him, instead of God lifting up his countenance upon him and giving him peace, God gave him exactly what all of those sins deserved. The eternal wrath of God poured out in full until the debt for every one of his people was entirely satisfied before God. And it was only then that Jesus on that cross could cry out three words. It is finished. See, he endured God's ultimate curse so that we, in him and through him, would be able to enjoy God's ultimate blessing.
Now it's also true we understand that that human man, Jesus, hanging on the cross could never endure the infinite wrath of God if he had not been sustained by God in it and kept by God through it. And he was, as he went in the grave, resting, knowing you will not abandon my soul to the grave to seek corruption, but you will raise me. And so that's why we hear Jesus at the end, after it's all finished, he says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And that's why God raised him from the dead to show everyone this is my righteous son, the one I am well pleased in. We should take this psalm and the blessing it talks about to heart for us, and we should have a burning desire that the peoples, the nations, would also, through us, be able to receive the same blessing so that we together as the people of God would be able to say that God blessed us. The earth has yielded its increase. God indeed we feared to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and I don't know, just sometimes astounded by how these Psalms that were written so long before the gospel became clearly understood in what we understand as the New Testament, and yet they speak in many ways so clearly about it. Because you, through your Spirit, were moving holy men of God to write exactly what your truth was. Pray that you would help us to embrace it. We do desire to have your fullest blessing poured out on us, but we desire it so that others through us would also enjoy that tremendous blessing. So that one day we will all be able to stand, as Revelations tells us, a multitude no one can number of every tribe and tongue and nation and people standing before the throne and giving praise to the Lamb. We ask these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.